couple weeks ago, the bulletin had a little space in it inside that said, put your favorite psalm here. How many of you did that? How many of you read that? How many of you picked up a bulletin? <laughs> oh, Stephanie's got one now. Well, for those of you who saw that or who hear that this morning, it's got to be on your mind already. How many of you uh, can think of a favorite psalm? What's the psalm that you think of? 23. Psalm 23. I, I heard it somewhere just recently. Lots of people would say that. Here's the thing, probably because it's the psalm that they're most familiar with. For some people, the only one that they're familiar with. And I hope over this past few weeks, we have added a couple more psalms to everyone's favorite. But here's something I want you to think about this morning. As much as everybody loves the 23rd Psalm, for obvious reasons, did you know the 23rd Psalm never shows up again in the New Testament? It's never quoted. Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd, and obviously that's echoing that, that psalm, but he doesn't mention the psalm at that point. And I remember hearing years ago that there was a psalm, the 110th psalm, that is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. It's the one that gets pulled up and referenced. So I got digging into that, and sure enough, Psalm 110, in fact, Psalm 110, verse 1, is quoted and alluded to in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament verse, period. 24 times in the New Testament, that verse or some semblance of it shows up as the New Testament writers look back. So I want to start this morning, guess which psalm we're going to look at? Psalm 110, it's a short psalm, and I'd like us just to begin. It's only seven verses long. See if this is the one you want read at your funeral. Okay? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in your day of power, in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, he will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Whew. Today marks week five, the last week that we're spending in some of the psalms that are about Jesus. I've called those the Jesus songs, right? Psalm 2 spoke about how God's son is Jesus. He is the son of God and is God. Psalm 40 shows Jesus as the one who came to earth and put on flesh and lived among us. Psalm 22 that Tom talked about is his suffering on the cross. Psalm 16 showed Jesus as the one who victoriously rose from the dead. And then today we're here in Psalm 110. How is it that this very short 
kind of intense psalm is the one that gets quoted the most often in the New Testament. That tells me something about it. It must be that its one main message is one of the most important messages that the Old Testament could give us at all. Come back next week, I'll tell you what it is. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. When it comes down to it, that is the crux of the Christian faith. Who is Jesus? Remember, Jesus asked the question of his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who does history show us that Jesus is? What does Jesus' resurrection have to do with Jesus' claims? Most importantly, though, this morning, who do you say that Jesus is? And how does that show up in the way that you think and live your life? So here is me tipping, uh, I said that wrong, here I am, tipping my cards right here at the, at the beginning. Jesus is king. That's it this morning. Jesus is king. Don't take my word for it. I want to listen to God's word on that subject, written by David about 3,000 years ago. Psalm 110 tells us that in so many words. Jesus is king. So when you walk out this morning, that's what I want you to have on your mind. Okay, let's go back to there. Jesus is David's son and he's David's Lord. That's what we're looking at in those first few verses. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in your day of power. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. What do you think of when I tell you, make sure you read the fine print? Make sure you read the fine print. You think of that time you didn't read the fine print, don't you? And you wish that you had. It usually means something negative. Someone is trying to pull one over on you. So read the fine print, you know, like in the movie The Santa Claus. The movie The Santa Claus, yeah. Where on Santa's business card, if you could just read the fine print around the edge, that's the Santa Claus. Spoiler alert if you've not seen that movie. Be careful when you read something. When it comes to scripture, read the fine print. Not because someone is trying to trick you, but because what you're reading when you open up this book and try to understand it is so vital to your life. You need to get it right. Read the fine print. And if you're having a hard time with that, get a large print Bible. For instance, Jesus was putting some disingenuous religious leaders in their place when he asked them a question about something that was very near and dear to their hearts. The Messiah, the Christ, whose son is he? He asked them one day. Well, they knew the answer. They had read the Old Testament. The Christ was going to be a descendant of which king? David. He is David's son. And that was true. He was to be a son of David. But that answer wasn't good enough. The Christ was more than just someone who came from the line of David. Look at that in Matthew 22, verse 43. He said to them, How is it then that David and the Spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So where did Jesus go back to to answer this? Psalm 110, verse 1. David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote about a conversation between the Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, that's the name of God the Father right there in verse 1, and David's Lord. That would be the Christ there. Jesus. Jesus was David's Lord. A thousand years before he was born in Bethlehem, Jesus may have descended from the earthly line of David, but Jesus was David's Lord. This one who would descend from him, he calls Lord. That was unheard of in Israel. You didn't call your descendants Lord. No one could answer how that was possible because they were looking for the Christ to be something and someone other than Jesus. They needed to read the fine print. They needed to look more carefully into God's word because David was never intended to sit at the right hand of God, but the Son of God was. So Psalm 110, while we're looking at that this morning, is about Jesus. When we read with that in mind, it opens it up for us in a way that those people could never have understood. I'm opening Psalm 110 this morning, and it says, The Lord says to my Lord, who is my Lord? Jesus. It's about him. Look at verse 1 again. He has sat down as Lord. This is all a view of Jesus after the cross. His greatest work for human history was to pay our sin debt, and once that was done, he sat down. The New Testament writers pick this up, Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 10, verse 12, when Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 1 Peter 3.22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. You know, one way of describing Christianity and what it means to be a Christian and all religions, the difference between the two are two words, do and done. Religion is all about doing. What do I need to do to please God, to appease him, to somehow make God reachable to me? I've got to do more so I'm right with God, right? That's what religion's all about. The Christianity, being a follower of Jesus, is relying on what Jesus has done. Amen? He has done the work, the work of our forgiveness. Aren't you glad for that? That part isn't up to us. He did the work and sat down. Then look at verse 3. Jesus is Lord of his church. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Church, who are his people today? That would be Jesus' followers. That would be you and me who have committed our lives to him. Understanding that Jesus is king ought to generate some loyalty. That's how it works. If you really believe that Jesus is king, then the time that he calls you for service, you show up, don't you? Dressed and ready to go. If not, 
then the reason isn't because Jesus stopped being king. It's for some other reason. Give it some thought. Answer this question for yourself this morning. How does your willingness to offer yourself freely for Jesus show what you really believe about if he is king or not? Along with being Lord of his church, let's go on down to verse 4. Jesus is also the greatest priest. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'll bet you were thinking that just as you got up this morning. We get to a verse like this and it's kind of easy just to breeze over it, isn't it? I mean, priests. Well, we don't do priests. That was Old Testament and now it's those other churches, so that's kind of foreign to our thinking. And Melchizedek, come on, could we shorten his name to Mel or something like that? I want to encourage you on your own time to run back to Genesis chapter 14 and read the story of a man named Melchizedek. You can call him Mel if you want to, fine. He just shows up there out of nowhere. It says he is a priest, it says he is a king, and that's all we know about him. He just shows up. He's there before there is a Jewish nation. Before there is an Old Testament law, before there is a priesthood of Aaron, here comes this guy, Melchizedek, and then he's gone. And that's all we get until Psalm 110. His name is mentioned there in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of, go ahead and say it, Melchizedek. Doesn't that feel good? And then... In the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, it goes into great detail comparing this mystery man, Melchizedek, to Jesus, except that Jesus is superior in many ways. But just like Melchizedek is not your normal kind of priest, neither is Jesus. Jesus is the greatest priest, and that's what chapter 7 is all about in Hebrews Well, the Jews needed this kind of information. They needed to learn that Jesus didn't fit their religious mold. He was different. He was bringing something new, something different. Jesus himself, in fact, described this new thing that he was bringing as new wine. He said you can't take new wine and put it into old wineskins because it will expand and burst the skins and it will be lost. You can't put a patch of unshrunk new material onto an old garment because it will shrink and it will tear it. They needed to understand that Jesus was bringing something new, something better than the Old Testament codes, and they stumbled at that. I think for us, it ought to remind us that Jesus isn't some thing that you fit into your life and so You squish him and you stretch him to fit your moral leaning, your schedule, your thought life, your plans, even your personal presuppositions of what the church is supposed to be. Look at the number of things that people try to say that are Christian when really it's nothing more than taking secular junk and putting a Jesus sticker on it and calling it Christian. You know what I'm talking about? 
There was a writer for the Los Angeles Times who went to a Christian Booksellers Association convention in Denver some years ago and pointed out just how silly that had all become. One of the products that she saw at the convention was Virtuous Woman Perfume. Here's what she wrote. Virtuous woman perfume comes packaged with a passage from Proverbs. But what makes the floral fragrance distinctly Christian, the retailer said, is that it's supposed to be a tool for evangelism. It should be enticing enough to provoke questions. What's that you're wearing, he said. And then you take that opportunity to speak of your faith. They've opened the door, and now they're going to get it. All thanks to virtuous woman perfume. What is that that you're wearing? Family Christian stores announced six years ago that they were shutting down. I guess you're going to have to find your what would Jesus do pepper spray somewhere else or something. Now before we get too critical, You're going to be getting ready for Christmas season and everything that accompanies it. And I want to ask you if you would be willing to do an inventory of your Christmas season and then ask yourself how much of what you do at Christmas is really a reflection of Jesus Christ, really. Jesus is the great high priest, amen? It's his church. I've said it before, the Lord isn't interested in being a part of your life. Are you listening? He is not interested in being a part of your life. He is inviting you to a whole new life in him. He's inviting you to be a part of his life. And he's giving you some time to make him your life. That's what a king does. Let's go on. Verses 5 to 7, we're also seeing here that as king, Jesus will conquer. And these last verses are another feature that just doesn't fit with what we would like it to say. I was kind of joking at the beginning when I said, see if you want this read at your funeral. As we read them again, I want you to notice that these words are about Jesus Christ and about what he is going to do. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He'll drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. It's pretty important to note this. Psalm 110 is after the cross. While Jesus was on earth, Jesus was the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. He was the one who, like a lamb before its shears is silent, he didn't open his mouth. That is how Jesus came to deal with our sin, God in human flesh. But once that work was done, there's a change. Hebrews 9.26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you see the difference? Jesus came first to deal with sin, but when he comes this second time, it's not going to be about dealing with sin. It's going to be about something else. Psalm 110 is about that second time that Jesus is going to appear. First time was to bear sin. Second time it'll be different. Jesus the king is going to come back as Jesus the warrior to conquer those who have chosen to be on the other side and to gather his people to be with him. That's why we're reading what we're reading. And by the way, your understanding of last things and end times it really doesn't matter on this. I don't care if you've watched every one of the movies in the Left Behind series. It's okay. It doesn't matter if you're an amillennialist, a premillennialist, a postmillennialist, a preterist, or a panmillennialist. Whether there's a thousand years in Jerusalem and then there's a final battle, or that this age right now is fulfilling all of those things, it doesn't change this. Jesus is done dealing with sin. He's done. And that is why he shouted on the cross, it is finished. It was done. That's what it meant. The work of redeeming mankind is done. And from that point on, Jesus is patiently waiting for his church to get our act together, to get the news out to everybody else. And he's giving people what they choose. One day in a new earth with a new heaven, there will be a new Jerusalem where Jesus will reign forever. Heaven, where the dwelling of God comes to be among men. But those who don't choose it, his enemies will be destroyed. That's what Psalm 110 tells us. You know, some people look at these kinds of things in the Old Testament and they look at other understandings that they get about God from the Old Testament, and they think that God in the Old Testament is this God of war and judgment, and that when you get to the New Testament, there's this different God, one who's kinder and, and changed. But this psalm, if you understand it, is about Jesus, tells us something else. God doesn't change, does he? Jesus doesn't change. And it's not as if God is the detached father creator and Jesus is Jesus, buddy. It's not that. And if that's how you have thought of God all along, I want then for you to take this and add it to your thinking this morning that God, the creator, God, the judge, is also seeking to be God, your redeemer, and God, your savior. And that ought to blow your mind. That, along with a proper view of God the judge, should blow you away. That God who is awesome, that God who is terrifying, is the God who loves you and wants you. Not the God who has changed. I think that God gave us Psalm 110 for us to be thankful. This, by the way, is Thanksgiving week. Let me share with you how the message of this psalm makes me thankful. i got three ways, and then we're going to dismiss, and you can eat turkey this week. I'm telling you, I'm thankful this morning. I am thankful that the blood of Jesus deals with our sin. 
once and for all. A few years ago, I was walking into my office with a whole cup of coffee and something shifted on my arm and knocked the whole thing out of my hand, right splat, right onto my office carpet, right on the floor. I felt pretty bad about it, but I went ahead and, and I fessed up to Don Anderson. I went ahead and told him that Brian Beck had done that. <laughs> and then he went to work on it. He told me it's going to take a little bit of time, but he right away, you know, started doing what carpet cleaners do, and, and he went to work on it. And he came back a couple days later, and he came back a, a, over a couple of weeks, and it finally was totally gone. But you know what? It took a few times trying to get that stain out. It worked, but it took a couple of weeks, and it took several visits before the stain was finally gone. If you walked in my office today, you wouldn't know it had ever been there. Listen, when the blood of Jesus is applied to your life, it takes away the stain of sin completely. That work doesn't have to be repeated over and over and over. Jesus died once for all times. And it takes away the stain. It's not like a sheep that gets dipped in flea dip and then after a few months they're showing up again and it's got to get re-dipped and re-dipped and redone. Jesus died once for all. I am so glad. I am so glad that I'm not at risk one day before the judgment throne of God of being almost forgiven. The blood of Jesus deals with it once and for all. I'm thankful for that today. Here's something else I'm thankful for. I am thankful that the Almighty wants us and has offered us grace, not just judgment. James chapter 2, verse 12, James is getting to the end of how we treat other people, and he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me tell you two ways that mercy triumphs over judgment in my life. First of all, God's mercy triumphs over judgment of my sins. God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. I don't get what I deserve, and I'm glad. That's one way that mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's another way that mercy triumphs over judgment. It's when I make the deliberate choice to have mercy toward others. That response to how God has treated me becomes bigger than my judgmental attitudes, my impatience, my tendency to be disgusted with people who aren't perfect like I am. And if I'll have mercy on them, like God has mercy on me, then I will help them to know the love of God so that mercy can triumph over judgment. I'm thankful for that today. I'm also thankful for this, that when Jesus returns, it won't be wrath towards me. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say it thankfully. There is a difference between the people of God and the enemies of God when Jesus returns. Folks, I don't know if you've been watching the news a whole lot lately, but I know that there ought to be a certain anxiousness and a certain longing in us for God to bring justice. 
And when he does that, there will be a difference between the people of God and the enemies of God. We who love Jesus are supposed to encourage one another with the words about his return. We, the people of God, are supposed to be looking for his return and hastening his return. Those are the kinds of words that Scripture uses about the church. It also uses some words about the enemies of God. Revelation chapter 6, when the sixth seal is opened and John is watching, he says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? FEMA, a few years ago, launched a campaign to encourage preparedness for disasters. No, that does not mean your firstborn child's about to turn three. Natural disasters, bad things that happen, you know? One of the ads on the radio, I've heard it a few times, but I I've, don't remember it all exactly, but it says, when is the best time to make an emergency plan? Should you wait until the fire is surrounding your house? Should you wait until the floodwaters are coming up to your door? Their point is, you should think ahead. You should have a plan. <laughs> Be prepared. Jesus said the same thing about his return. Watch. Be ready. Be prepared. Here's the plan. Here's my plan. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. We are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's my plan. That's my plan. Jesus will deliver me. He won't come to destroy me as his enemy. He will come to take me to be with him. I don't say that arrogantly. I'm just thankful today. Who will be king? You know, that question has already been settled. What hasn't been settled for everybody is how you will choose to respond, the choice that you will make. And from there, God is simply going to let you have your choice. In fact, he's gone to great lengths to give you the power to choose, to have an opportunity to make a choice. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce said there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. You know, we ask people, who do you think Jesus is? Because that is at the very heart of following him. Jesus himself asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Jesus himself, when he was being questioned by Pontius Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? <laughs> he literally said, you said it. That's what it says. You said it. Paul later calls that the, the great confession. The confession. The acknowledgement that Jesus is king. That's a choice that he gives us the opportunity to make. It's a choice that you can make today to step up, to say, I do believe this. I believe that Jesus is king, like the scriptures teach.
I'm going to ask you please to stand with me. And in just a moment here, we want to have an opportunity for you to take action on this. If you have come to this conviction and you've never made that something that you speak freely about, I want to encourage you to speak freely about it. In fact, in just a moment here, I'm going to have you say it out loud. Not to trap you or trick you, but if you really believe that it's true that Jesus is king, then I'm going to ask you to repeat it with me. If you're not there yet this morning, then I'm going to ask you to do this. Would you consider why you don't believe that yet? And maybe there is an opportunity that we have to teach you. Maybe you'd be willing to sit down and, and look at the evidence or to look at different scriptures and to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is king. Paul said in Romans chapter 10 that it's with the mouth that we confess and with the heart that we believe and we're saved. It begins with this belief that Jesus is who we claim to be. Jesus is king. Would you say that with me if you believe it? Jesus is king. Can you say it louder like Brian Rodert had you do earlier? Jesus is king. Now, if you believe that, that shows up in your life, doesn't it? If you're ready to make a decision to, to really act like Jesus is king, then, and you haven't done that, then we're going to have a word of prayer. We're going to ask you to come here to the front. We want to talk to you about your relationship with him. Maybe you're ready today to become his follower. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this psalm that thousands of years ago your spirit had David write so that we here today in Rockford, Illinois in the year 2023 could better understand that Jesus indeed is King, our Lord. Thank you, Father, for your great plan that uh, transcends the ages that is all coming together and one day will be finalized as the Lord makes his return. Father, we want to be found watching. We don't want to be the enemies who are to, to be conquered. We want to be the ones who are taken up together with you in the air. And so I pray today that you would work on our hearts. If there's areas in our life that need to be changed, if there are dark places, Father, that we are unwilling to hand over to you to deal with. Let today be the day that we make those kinds of, of commitments and changes that need to be made. Father, there are some here today that yet need to start in this relationship with you. And I pray that this will be the day that with confidence and with joy, they too would shout, Jesus is King. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.